Oh yeah, it's Graham Daniels here with the Christians in Sport podcast. Over the next few months, we're going to chat to people who really understand the joys and pressures of top-level sport. My first guest is Cyril Regis MBE, who was 19 years a professional footballer and 16 of them at the highest level. It's now called the Premier League and he played 614 league games and scored 158 goals. That's a pro. What I'm going to do today is to delve with him. I want to find out what it's like to play at the highest level, but I also want to know far, far more tricky things. What's it like being a top athlete when you're injured, when you're out of form, when you have to move to a new part of the country and it's tricky on your family, when you're lonely? These are the kinds of issues I want to discuss with Cyril Regis today. So let's get going. Christians and Sport podcast with Graham Daniels. So it's 1963 and Cyril Regis, you're five years of age and you come from French Guyana to join your family on the Portobello Road in London. My goodness me, <laughs> moving to Great Britain in 1963, culture shock? Absolutely. I can still remember being on the boat. It was the Ascania on Cunard. Uh, February 1963, and it was uh, that that, Chris, that Christmas. It was I've never seen snow before. Incredibly cold. Uh, when we got there, we had one room. Me and my mum and my brother came in '63. My dad came in '62, and dad's gone out to work. Mum's mum's trying to get on with life. I look back now, and I'm thinking it must have been awful for my parents to come over here to help build England and then find themselves in one room. We progressed from there to two rooms. Uh, my mum and dad had two more kids and my sister, Neela, who's four years older than me, she came over. So there were seven of us in two rooms. What's the toughest thing that you remember from that period? I think it was being split because back in Kensal Rise, part of the problem was housing. Five kids above the landlord in Kensal Rise, making noise all day. What do you do when your kids? You're ramping, you're jumping up and down the settee. The landlord kicked us out. We went to Wilsdon um, and the whole family got split. My sister was in Neasden. My dad was in Labra Grove, his brother. And my mum was in uh, Allgate East, East End with my older brother, younger sister. And me and my younger brother, David, we got shipped out to Aldershot for a whole year in a convent. And I, and I think um, that you know makes you have to grow up. My mum used to come every two Sundays because my brother was very close to his mum. Uh, she had to sneak out because he'd be crying for ages. And so I can remember as a, as a nine-year-old, he used to put my brother next to me on his cot and used to, used to talk in his sleep because he'd missed his mum so much. So I, I think being separated and having to deal with my younger brother, having to deal with, with nuns for nine, nine, nine months, dealing with all that, you know, you had to have an edge about you. How come the breakthrough into football then? Because you, you actually started work a little bit later on in your teens now, as an apprentice electrician. Yeah. You train as an electrician. Yeah. So you end up playing non-league football for, for a couple of clubs. Mm. Um, just tell us a, a little bit about the Molesy and Hayes period, because it's there that you get spotted. That's right. It takes, uh, no, again, today, kids are in academies from eight, seven, mm. six. Mm. You don't even get a sniff of this no. until you're working. Well, I, I started to play at school. You know, I went to Kensal Rise, got in a school team. But back then, I was to play a lot of cricket. Um, and then I went to Cardinal Hinsley. I was brought up a Catholic. Went to Cardinal Hinsley, and I couldn't get in the school side. 
Uh, it wasn't until I was about 13, got in the school side and started to play, got in, got into uh, play for the borough. Uh, Mr. Marsden was, was the man who looked after our school side in the borough. Uh, I went to a couple of youth clubs. One particular youth club was Oxford and Kilburn in Queen's Park and I used to play with the Gettins. Uh, and it was great. We used to play. Well, the England captain, Mike Gatton. Yeah, and, and his brothers. And he's got both pros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both pros come with pros. So. Yeah, top players as well. Those days. How come you're playing with them if you're not good? <laughs> <laughs> but we used to go to youth club and he had a big hall. All we done was play five aside all day. And all, all, all evening, I think once on a Friday, just on a Friday, youth clubs just play football all day. And they used to organise games on, the, on a Sunday. And uh, on a Friday, we used to have a great big van. Go down a little chippy, all the way home, put chips and playing football. And so I got in the school team at 13 and I just fell in love with football. All my friends were saying, I'm going to have trials of so-and-so. I was like, I'm going to have trials of so-and-so. And I just carried on playing. Uh, I left school at 16 and the, 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 the most of the players that used to play for, for my school team, we got together and we formed rather Brent Valley. Uh, one of the players' dads, uh, uh, Mr. Dolan, he used to work at Ryder Truck Rentals. Uh, he, he, he kept the team together like most kind of grassroots. There's some man who's he's got a son and he just falls in love and, and organises the team and gets together. And we ended up playing around about 16, 17 in a Regents Park League. What I loved about it is the camaraderie. I loved running around, being football and your teammates, the banter. In fact, when we used to play at Regents Park... He used to hire a van. And if we was late, you have to get a change in the van. <laughs> so the opposition team used to see us coming out all dressed up and kid <laughs> in Regent's Park. We had a good side because it was, a, it was a, the, the, the skeleton side of the, of, the, of, the, of the borough side. The story, the story goes that the manager of, of Mosley Football Club, uh, John Sullivan, he was like a, it's like a music impresario. He was in the music business. He was the manager stroke chairman of Mosley Football Club, lived in London, and he had this one man and his dog who used to go around looking at games in Regent's Park and giving him names of, oh, there's, a, there's this team called so-and-so and there's a couple of players there, I think you're going to have a look. So anyway, this young one man and his dog told John Sullivan he came down and saw three of us play, myself, John, Philip Webster and John O'Reardon. I was 17, fighting us for trials. Went out to Mosley, which is like Richmond, miles away. Uh, and I got in, me and, me and John O'Reardon got in, uh, and of course I didn't drive. So John Sullivan used to pick us up, pick us up from Stonebridge, drive us all the way down twice a week on a Tuesday and a Thursday to train and play. Uh, I got in the side, scored 24, 25 goals, but it was tough. But it, it's tough, right? But he's got 24, 25 goals. Never, it's semi-pro football. Semi-pro, five a week. You see, you should drop me a little five a week, you know. In, a, in an envelope, brown envelope, back pocket. Or slip in your pocket. <laughs> but at a time, I was only earning 32 and a half pence an hour. It was hard, you yeah. know. And I think, because I was an apprentice electrician, so it meant getting up at six in the morning, travelling across London on the building site till a three on a Tuesday and a Thursday, getting a train or getting picked up, going to Mosley and Hayes, getting on a coach, going to the game, playing a game, coming back to the clubhouse, a few beers, of course, mm. getting home at one and two in the morning to get up at six. Back to work. Back to work, doing that eight-hour shift. Yeah. Now, I'm a young 18, 19-year-old. I'm getting battered. I'm a striker. You've yeah. got these 
great big fellows smashing you. Do you get some chat? Yeah, yeah. You get some shocking yeah, chat, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, Being yeah. a young boy, send a house. But nothing racism, though. I'm a 17-year-old. These guys are wily 38, no, not 38, 28, 29-year-olds yeah. giving in to you. In those days, it was proper tackling. Yeah. You know, you could tackle from behind. You're getting smashed. And, of course, you learn how to look after yourself, move the ball correctly, get your elbows out, put your bum in the way, put your body there, put your body between the ball. You're learning. We need to push on to moving out of that side of yeah. business. Yeah. So you had a couple of years. Yeah, I went to Mosley yes. uh, for a year, five or a week. Then I played quite well and moved over to, to Hayes. Yeah. Hayes in Middlesex, Ishmael League. Uh, no trials. Uh, lots of people are, he's not bad him. He's all right him. He's got a chance. All these scouts come down from Reading, Arsenal, uh, Millwall, they all come down, but no one says, I'll buy him. No one said that. Anyway, the story goes that uh, your name gets around, doesn't it? There's a black lad down at, down at uh, Hayes. He's doing all right. I'll have a look at him and got through to Ronnie Allen at West, at, uh, West Brom. Ronnie Allen come down and <laughs> the story goes, come watch me play a couple of times and one day he saw me play at Hayes. The ball got crossed in the box. I've gone up for it. Me, the goalkeeper, two defenders, and the ball end up in the net. <laughs> he goes, I'll have that. Do, <laughs> you do that'll me. do nicely in 1970s football. <laughs> there you go. But you could do that. You can't even It'll look at goal. No, you couldn't touch him. You now. can't even look at goalkeeper. Did you smack him? Oh, in the I net? smashed all of them, mate. And <laughs> <laughs> got a goal. So he went, that'll do for me. So he went back to West Brom because Ronnie Allen was a top player for West Brom and for England. The great Johnny Giles was the manager. Uh, Johnny Giles resigned by the time I got in there, but Ronnie Allen became the manager and he persuaded the Albion board to buy me. Apparently they said, you know, black lad from London, a bit raw, £10,000, mm, not sure. And he went, I'll buy with my own money. When he makes it, give him money back. So I, I told this to young kids because you need people to believe in you in life. You need, you need an advocate, someone to go, I like him. Someone who goes, I can see something in him. Because sometimes you don't see it in yourself. But Ronnie Allen saw something in me. And he was the only manager that was a striker I played with twice, actually, back in my career. And uh, he persuaded West Brom to, uh, to sign me. So I signed. Just, I just passed my exams as a qualified electrician, B grade. <laughs> I worked in a building site all the way up to July. Then packed up my bags. I didn't have a clue where West Brom was. I'm a Londoner. I've only watched... Three, four, five or six games in my life, just go to Tottenham or bunking at QPR, get up to London, don't know where West Brom was, and it was a culture shock. Coming from London to West Brom, in two things. One, I couldn't understand a word. <laughs> I'm a Londoner, and this is, this is black country. Yeah, I'm all right. Oh, it took me a whole year to get used to it. <laughs> Translating uh, everything. Oh, he, pardon? <laughs> <laughs> half the, the, the conversation was pardon. And what another thing as well was, I was bored. Bored. I've been used to working all day, eight hours, ten hours, getting home at six, doing this, doing that. And as a professional footballer, even as a, a reserve, an hour and a half a day. I was like, what do you do? So I was seriously bored. But you get into the life. You meet Larry Cunningham, Brian Robson, Derek Statham, the great Tony Brown. And you get into the life of being a professional footballer. You made your debut uh, against Rotherham League Cup, 77, for West mm. Brom. Uh, Ronnie Allen was manager by now. Mm. Giles had gone. Giles had gone, he resigned, yeah. Yeah, um, and your league debut, uh, Middlesbrough, you win 2-1. Uh, 
and you're off the notch. Rather than you score two. Yeah. So you, you score your first goals. It's amazing because back then, as you all know, the reserves never mixed with the first team. Uh, I've been there two months. I was struggling with with, with being fitness because I've never. Don't forget, I haven't. I have not trained full time. It's just I've only tried trained twice a week. So train every day. My body's getting used to it. Every day doing a pre-season twice twice a day, playing football and then getting up and doing training the following day. Whereas in the past I'd be on a building site. So I'm getting used to professional football. My body's getting used to it. Uh, I was doing all right in the reserves, scored a few goals in reserves, and there was a few injuries. And sometimes things happen in life that gives you a chance. David Cross got injured, and I think um, Ali Brown got injured. And uh, Ronnie, I was playing quite well in reserves, scored a couple of goals in reserves. And this is August. It's tough. I've been a pro maybe two months. Ronnie Allen says, uh, go home tonight, you're starting. And of course, your heart starts to pound, doesn't it? Oh, what's it? What was it like? Oh, I mean, you, you you don't mix with the first team. You're with the reserves, aren't you? And so I'm thinking, I'm going to play tonight. And I used to live about a mile away from the stadium. A lovely lady called Mrs. Gross, Jamaican food, because they wanted, you know, home from home, rice and peas and green banana, all that kind of stuff. And I walked from my digs to the, to the ground, walked in, all the boys are there. There's something about professional boys who've done it, been there, bought a T-shirt. They're all getting changed. They're nice and cool. Laurie Cullum's getting changed and Derek Stave and Willie Johnson's getting changed. They're all cool. And I, men, I'm blagging it. I'm walking there cool, but inside I am dying. I'm thinking, oh, I've got to run, I've got to go out in front of them. And I could see them thinking, is this lad good enough to be in my team? They're weighing you up, aren't they? You know, when players come in, is it good enough to be in my team? I can see them going, I've seen him. Can he make the right runs? And am I going to give him the ball? He's going to make the right decisions. Am I going to run 30 yards? And he's going to give me the ball. All right, mate, all the best. And, and I'm blagging it because I'm from London. I'm so you're front. You're giving it large. It's all front. You're all, I'm, I'm you're... pretending I'm cool. Yeah. You're following them, aren't you? Yeah. You're following them, trying to play them cool, getting getting changed, all that. But deep inside, I know I've only played in front of 500. And now I'm going out in front of 15,000. It's that mixture of fear and excitement. So it's a, it's a wonderful feeling, but it's you can go either way. You can you can paralyze you, or you could turn it around. And, you, and so I ran out there, uh, and the, the noise. I mean, I've never played in front of fifteen thousand. Never five hundred was the most. Uh, Hayes. I ran out there, and all I can remember is running around like a chicken, <laughs> no head on, because just energy, you know. There's, yeah. And then sometimes there's openings in life. I just ran around, ran around, missed a couple of goals. In the second half, we're 2-0 up and we get a penalty. Willie Johnson got the ball and for an unexplainable reason, the whole fans, this is my debut, the whole fans at West Brom, zero, zero, zero. Willie Johnson's gone. He's gone. He's, <laughs> Give you the ball. Show me the ball. He's shown me the ball. He's like, yeah. It's up to you, son. You want it. And that's bit, I'll never take penalties. In that split moment, I've took it. Because the fans are going, zero. I don't know why. Zero, zero. I've gone up, put it in, scored another goal, scored two goals, and... That's it. Lift off. You're off? Lift off. But then, of course, and you've been in the Midlands all these years now, yeah. you know, then then begins the establishment of the Midlands legend, yeah. football legend. Well, I, was, I mean, I made my debut uh, against Middlesbrough the following, the following Saturday, scored two goals, end up scoring six goals in ten games. They got rid of David Cross. Uh, I stayed at West Brom uh, for seven years. I mean, we played, I mean for late 70s was, was, was fantastic. Great to be there. And of course, Big Ron come. Ron Atkinson mm -hmm. comes in. For those who ever saw Big Ron, a huge character, 
And he's got his break, really, hasn't he? Yeah. He's got his break yeah. into the big time from the lower leagues. Context, you've got three players of the highest reputation for all that period, really. We're talking uh, a lengthy period of time, the 77th through 84, mm. that you're at West Brom. Ron Atkinson comes in, Laurie Cunningham, Brendan Batson and you. Today, if somebody called you the three degrees, mm. it, they'd be in jail, <laughs> right? Stereotypical, B- yeah. Because it is trading off three black players in the same team, top level of football. But that was the nickname you got. You did, yeah. Talk to us about Big Ron and his approach as a manager, mm. because what a huge character yeah. to learn to play for. And being a black player who's really famous now, the three of you really famous, mm. Cunningham, Real Madrid, uh, after West Brom, mm. big players, England internationals. Mm. What was it like? When Big Run came, uh, Johnny Giles has hit the scene. Johnny Giles, great player, Albion played some great football on the ground, pass and move, pass and move. Big Run came, Laurie Cunningham was already there. Laurie Cunningham came in March 77, I came in May 77. Ronnie Allen left, went to uh, Saudi Arabia to manage the side there. Uh, big run come. Saudi Arabia, a lot of pace in the side, and he just wanted the ball played a little bit quicker up to us and a little bit more pace. Laurie was there, I was there, and um, Ron came from Cambridge and brought his captain, Brendan Batson, to West Brom, and so there was three of us. And back in 1977, that was radical, seriously radical. We had some black players in the lower leagues. The most famous black player used to be Clyde Best at West Ham. And, and for a whole... Seven, eight years, there wasn't no significant black player in a, in a top flight. Laurie Cunningham was at West Brom for £100,000. I got there and Brendan Batson. So to have three black guys in a side was radical. So you can imagine going to West Ham, Chelsea, Leeds, Birmingham, Newcastle, Millwall. I mean, I'm not talking but nowadays when you hear one black comment, everybody's up in arms. We should get 10,000 people shouting, nigger, nigger, lick my boots. Tottenham used to sing this song. Who's that upper tree? Big Cyril, Big Cyril. Kunta Kinte, Kunta Kinte. He cuts the ball. Ooh, 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 ooh. Monkey chance. I mean, not one or two, talking 10,000. The racist abuse we got was was incredible. And the worst I got was in 1981, my first England call-up. We used to get fan mail. Open up his fan mail. It's all this letter, and he says, if you put your foot on that Wembley turf, get one of these for your knees. A bullet came through the post. 1981. That's the sort of level of racism we had, you know. And people say, how'd you deal with it? How'd you deal with that? And I think what, looking back, how we dealt with it is it made you angry. And I think it was one, one thing I, I, I try and teach young players all the time. You are still in control. It made you angry, but it's what you do with the anger. And we chose to use his motivation. Right, I'm going to show you how good I am. I'm going to run harder, chase harder, put that ball in back of the net, beat your side. How was Ron... Atkinson with you, did he, how did he encourage the three of you in that? Was Great, he? one of the best man managers. I wouldn't say he's the best technical coach, but when he, I think a lot of them back then was man managers. I mean, for fir- first five years as a pro footballer, all I played was five a side. 20 minutes a half, five a side, bit of crossing and shooting, uh, some sprints, some stomachs, go home, you know? So we done five a side. High tempo, good, you know, proper, but big Ron, great man manager knew went nothing looking back there's only two ways of motivating anybody carrot and stick and he used to use it in the right time right place the right people in the right context um love playing for him uh great fun great team lots of laughter 
great camaraderie, great team spirit. We should have won the league, but because of the the, the snow in eight, 78, 79, but uh, great experience to, 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 to work with Big Ron. Uh, okay. what's, uh, what's the one story when I ask you now? Memorable story of Big Ron at his best with you? What I used to do all the time, I can't say too much, but the boy, the story that comes straight to my mind. Derek Staven went out on a Thursday. Oh, no, he don't go out. Which is out of order. 48 out of order. hours. Anyway, Big Ron went out on Thursday and caught Derek Staven in a nightclub. <laughs> and this is great. What's Ron doing there? <laughs> oh, you know, champagne. Anyway, I, I think he sent him over a bottle of champagne. <laughs> oh, so Derek Staven's in a nightclub. Big Ron's walked in, probably with John Barnwell or Jim Smith. Derek Staven sent a bottle of champagne over. <laughs> to the on a Thursday night. The dairy's gone. Oh, obviously, he's, he's gone home. Following day, Friday, sat everybody down. He's gone. You see that little SHIT? He's out on a Thursday night. I'm going to find him two weeks' wages. If you don't beat Liverpool on Saturday, it's going to be four weeks' wages. We've all gone up in hands. We've gone, find a little so and so. And so he's used a situation like that to galvanise the players. So we went out there and we beat... And Liverpool was a top, top side. We went out there and beat Liverpool on the, on a Saturday because I mate would have got two weeks' wages, fine. But being out on a Thursday, went out there, beat Liverpool, which was... You know, Liverpool in the 70s was their side. And so we saved him uh, getting two weeks' fine. But that was big run. Once again, he, he, he managed to get a, a positive out of a bad situation. Mm. He could have gone, you know what, never play again or two weeks' fine, you're not playing... Saturday, but he's turned it around and he's used it for the good of the side. Yeah, very clever. Very clever. Brilliant time at West Brom. You go to Coventry in 84 through 91. Um, Bobby Gould takes you there. Early days, b- bit of a relegation struggle, uh, but then bang, off you go. You get out of jail in 85 against mm-hmm. Everton, win 4 1, stay, mm-hmm. stay in what's the Premier League mm-hmm. now. And then from about 86, 87, top team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, today, Coventry City aren't right at the top. Then, top, top Premier League team. Mm. Were you at your peak then, do you think? Now, yeah. you know, we're talking about pro footballers in this instance, when we chat to you, 26 through 33. That's what people say, in football, that's you really at your peak. Yeah, I can I can say that 29 was my peak. Why can that you say year, that? I can look back, or even then, I think two things come together. One is the mental side because when you're young your confidence ebbs and flows your body's strong but your confidence ebbs and flows and you're sensitive to criticism sensitive to uh what managers say sensitive to what the fans say what your players say and as a striker you're up and down and one of the things is what gets your career is a high level of consistency and you're inconsistent so you're up and down all over the shop but with experience and a stronger mind because you've been through things up and down, not just from a football point of view, from a life point of view, you gain more character. And I think you gain how you understand how to manage a game in terms of, you know, your strengths and weaknesses. You've had 10 years in a game, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of who you are as a player and you've got a discipline to use your strengths and weaknesses when you're not confident. So when you're not confident, you've got the discipline to just what they say, go back to basics. And so you've got a discipline to go back to basics. So even when you're lacking confidence, you can still be six out of 10 by just doing the basics well. So when your confidence comes back, you're eight and nine. Pinging it here, nutmeg, drop your shoulders, because your confidence back, can you do it? And it's a flow. And it's managing when you're not playing well. And I think over a course of time, knowing your body, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, and knowing yourself and having that discipline to go, I'm not feeling quite right there. A bit tight. Confidence is low. How do I get a game myself out there today? So you're managing it. And plus, you're still strong. You're quick. I'm 29. And it's just at the apex. 
you know, I'm 29, fit, strong, playing well, good team, great manager and, uh, and coaching John and George. It was a wonderful time. Yeah, John Solid and George Curtis, uh, great managers in that period for Coventry City. Uh, very, much, very much that big run, man managers. Yeah, not you the know, coaching not, thing. No, 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 no. Yeah. And I, in, in fact, I go back then, our, our, our team spirit was the best. Better than West Brom, better than Villa, the best I've ever had it. I mean, they learned the art of man management from Jimmy Hill and poured money into team spirit. And we used, we used to spend more time with each other than our wives and girlfriends. I was out drinking, partying, you know. They used to turn around and say, if you went out, out on, 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 at Coventry, get a taxi home. Don't want you drinking and driving. I mean... Yeah, they just assumed it would have you drink. Yeah, but, but the camaraderie and the yeah. tightness we got from yeah. that in terms of team spirit was was phenomenal. We still meet up today. Yeah. The, the flip side of the, at its worst, we'd call it a lad culture. At its best, camaraderie. You mm. know, everything's got its flaws, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. it? You know, this is a period in in your career now. You're at your peak in some ways. Uh, peak of top of the game. Very very famous, mm. well known player throughout football and the country. Mm -hmm. All your pals, same. I'm thinking, what does this do on two levels? You've got great pals. You lose Laurie Cunningham in an accident mm -hmm. uh, in Spain, Real Madrid, top global player. You lose Laurie Cunningham, one of your closest friends. And you've got your own family to cater for when the whole lifestyle is spending more time in clubs or out doing the beer mm. than with your own family. Mm. I'd like to hear what that crisis feels like in your early 30s. Mm. When you know you're heading past your best years as a footballer, you know that time's going to hit you at some point soon. It's at this point that you come to uh, some kind of Christian faith for yourself, mm -hmm. uh, older than many people do. Tell us first about um, family life and then Laurie. Well, as, as you can imagine, that sort of culture and football being what it is, the whole family life is around a footballer. If the club says you've got a game, you've got to go. If the club says you're going to go to China, you've got to go. If the club says, you know... You know, you, your wife could be ill, your grandma could be ill. The club says you're playing Manchester, you got to go. You're traveling the world, got to go. So the whole of your family life is around me. And of course, we're playing, it's great. I'm, I'm one of the boys. And of course, when you're out there, your drinking comes with all sorts of things. Women, uh, particularly for me anyway. And so my wife, you get caught, don't you? Lives there on a collar, wife hears about you with this girl. And it starts to destroy your marriage. And I, and I think there's always a consequences for one's action. And so my marriage was, 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 you know, the building blocks for marriage. I didn't understand it then. The building blocks in terms of trust, confidence, communication, um, you know, putting time into your marriage. It was just the building blocks were just being smashed. And so I knew sooner or later that, you know, my marriage was, it might look good from the outside, but within the four walls of a home, it was cold. And it was all my fault. I had two kids and I knew I was breaking my marriage up, but I, I couldn't change. It was that culture of be one of the boys. And it was basically, if you played well, go out a few beers and celebrate. If you played badly, go out a few beers and commiserate. So you was always drinking and you always found a reason to drink and you was the boys. Never really faced up to your, your responsibilities and, and your marriage. And so the, my marriage was, was were going apart. And obviously, as I said, it was my fault because of that, that lifestyle, because of that behaviour. But deep down for years, I wanted to change. You know, because you know you're doing wrong and you're coming home, a big argument and not seeing your kids. I wanted to change. But as much as I had all this mental strength when it came to playing football in front of thousands of people, the, the character 
to change. I never had it. I wanted to change because you're, you're hurting someone, hurting your wife, and you're hurting other women, hurting your kids. And it was a very selfish existence in terms of what I wanted, when I wanted it, and who cares? I've got enough money, I've got enough time, I get out of it. Uh, and I wanted to change, but I didn't. Well, another thing happened was, as you mentioned before, Laurie Cullum, who was my best friend, he died in a car crash. You know, I mean, we went through so much together in the 70s, the racism, partying, drinking, lots of confidence, picking each other up, talking football, you know, talking about life, talking about our goals. Uh, he went to Real Madrid for nine hundred thousand pounds in nineteen seventy eight. We used to, I used to go over there to Real Madrid, party with him. He used to come over here to London, have a great time, drinking and partying. Remember this, you know, banter stories. I'm at Coventry, get a phone call on a Thursday. I'm going to speak to Laurie on a on a on a on a Tuesday. He's going to come over next week. I'm going to come over and have a drink. Uh, get a call on a Friday. My best friend Laurie Cunningham dies car crash. Apparently went to a nightclub on the way home, smashed his car. Fell out the door, banged his head on the way home, died in a car crash. And that broke my heart. Here's my best mate, been through all these things together. I knew each other very, very well. And it brought back to a situation that we had two years prior to that. Me and Laurie had been in Madrid. We went out from 12 o'clock to do a bit of shopping. Of course, started drinking. Went drinking, went to the pub, went to a tapas bar, went to a nightclub. Drunk on the way home, Laurie was driving. He fell asleep at the wheel. The car hit the side barrier. Rolled over three or four times. I could still see the sparks and hear the noise and you're thinking I'm going to die. Rolled over three or four times, skidding its roof. And so, for some reason, I had seatbelts on. So the, end, the car ends up upside down. So I'm done our seatbelts, jump out of the car, got a lift home. And you're thinking, lucky escape. But then two years later, when Laurie dies, it's like, oh my God, my best friend's passed away. And there was so much questions in my heart about, where's Laurie now? Is it life after death? And... If I'd have died, where would I be? So all these questions come in my heart. But one of the biggest things that really sank in my thinking was here was me and Laurie, fame, money, influence, power, cars, adulation. Laurie took nothing with him. I'm thinking, so what's life all about? Hit me like a brick, like a sledgehammer. I mean, why am I fighting for all these things? And I could have died two years ago. Laurie's died now and he's left everything behind. And I just needed answers. But I knew there was a God, but I, you know, that's all I knew. I started to go back to church and I bumped into a very famous cricketer called Ron Headley. Uh, his dad was George Headley, great cricketer in the West Indies. And his, his son was Dean Headley, played for, for England. And I started to go to church with, with Ron and I bumped into Brian Hewitt, who worked with Christians in sport in the Midlands. He used to have um, uh, golf dinners, uh, uh, Christian dinners and all that. And I bumped into him and he said, uh, are you a Christian? You come to church and you, I says, I believe in God, but I'm not, not committed. He says, do you mind if um, somebody comes around your house? Uh, I says, yeah, okay, no problem. So I'm searching down two months later, a lad called Colin Day, who was a minister at uh, Sutton, Sutton Baptist Church. I lived in Streetly. He came over to my house, introduced himself, and we sat for five hours. And he told me how much God loved me. And he broke it down very simply, really. He said, to get into heaven, basically, you've got to be sinless. You know, you can't do one sin and, and, and no one can get in heaven because everybody's sinned. But he says, Jesus Christ came down from heaven and he died in my place. When he explained like that, I'm thinking, wait, all the girls, all the cheating, all the adultery. He says, yes, Jesus Christ died for that. But I said a little prayer, said, basically saying, Lord, I, I lived my life the, the way I've wanted to do it, away from you, uh, done my own thing. I really want to get to know you. Come Saturday, 
I've gone out and played well. I was like 22 again. Scored a couple of goals. And of course, what did I do? Rung up my brother, David, coming down to London. Party. Went out of London. Nightclub. Champagned up. And of course, pulled a nice young lady. Ended up back in her house till seven in the morning. Brilliant. Monday, my mind's saying, here you are, asking God to come in your life. Two days later, you're committing adultery. How do you square that up? Come Wednesday, I'm in tears. Colin Day leaves me a little book by Michael Green, New Dimension. I started to read this book. And as, as I'm reading this book, the penny drops, really sinks in that Christ loves me, died for me, and he rose again from the dead. And this awesome sense of peace comes over me. Well, let's, let's make use of the time then to, to say this is a huge juncture. It's, it's over 20 years ago now. Uh, well, over 20 years ago now. It's now. Mm. You've still got a, a home, a wife, two kids. Mm. You've got the legacy of a lifestyle. And you move on to Villa. Dean Saunders mm. is on the up. Mm-hmm. You're going the other way now. You go to join Big Ron again. It's not not the old days now. And it's fine, isn't it? Yeah. It goes well at Villa, mm. tidy, but you know you're... Uh, on the way down, yeah. On, on the way towards completion. Move to Wolves. First time out of the top level mm. when you go to Wolves. Um, oh, that time we're going for a divorce. Right. So it's a three-year spell. Your career's moving towards its close. Mm. In the end, you go to Wickham and Chester. You play through to 38. Yeah. Hence 19 seasons in professional football. I'm interested in, in how you navigate this. Mm. Uh does your faith inform this? You know, what, what is the real Cyril Regis doing in this period in terms of home and work? It's tough. And I think uh, they're getting divorced. It's consequences for nations. And so at the same time becoming a Christian, I'm getting divorced. Uh, the wife wants to divorce. And it's tough. I'm playing at Villa. I'm playing at, I'm playing at Wolves. Uh, I moved out to London when I was at Wickham with my, my, sis- with my sister. I'm going through divorce. And it's mentally tough. You're going through divorce, you're going through lawyers, and you still have to get out and play football in front of 30, 40, 20, 15,000 people. But it's that mental strength that you need, and plus you've got your relationship with God. And so you're building up your relationship with God, going to church, and calling days to come around my house all the time and, and, and encourage me, talk about the Bible, talk about my problems. Uh, and I think uh, as a young Christian, I think one of the key things I think I'd done was to get a confidant. Somebody who is wise, who's been there, bought a T-shirt, I can go. Because I, I think men, we hide things, you know, we, we, we keep things in. And for me, when I became a Christian, I was free to be vulnerable and don't have to be this person and go, I'm struggling here. And Colin Day was a, a great friend who I can go and say, I'm struggling here. Mentally, it was tough. But what I held on to all the time, that I met Jesus. So whatever happened, that, that, that initial sense of peace, that initial sense of everything's going to be all right, which I felt then, that was my foundation. That whatever happens, and sometimes even when I was going through all that, you think that it's going to happen, it's going to, the Christian, your life is going to be how you want it to be, that it's going to save your marriage and marriage and your kid's going to be all right again. But when you start to divorce, you start to question it. But you're thinking, God, you know. God, you know, you have a plan and I've got a relationship with you and you've told me it's going to be okay. And so there's a sense of surrender because all my life you've been in control. And it's a bit of a dichotomy really because when you're not in control, God's in control. And so you've got relinquished control, which as a man is, you feel vulnerable. And, and yet in it, you tried with all that you'd done in the past, mm. you tried to keep your to marriage To save the marriage, alive. yeah, I did, yeah. Uh, and it was just too late. Yeah. 
too much pain. So, so you, in one level, you've changed your perspective on life that you trust God at the center of it. Mm-hmm. Do you think, it's a, it's a pretty candid question, do you think in the pain of having a marriage breakup that you didn't want to break up at that point? Mm, I didn't, yeah. Did having a faith inform the way you actually behave towards your yeah. family in that change? Yeah. How? I think what it was, I wanted to be honest. So I was trying to save the marriage. I just want to be honest. So I just put everything on the table and let God and my wife make her own decisions. Everything meaning what? Finance, behaviour, priorities, making not me the priority, making my children the priority mm. in my decision making, uh, where, I, where I live, what I do, what I do for my finances. So you didn't be- hide anything on the financial no, side? You no, didn't sort of keep stuff not, back? Nothing, so you didn't- nothing. In becoming a new Christian, you just wanted to be clean. And, and, the, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about, tell the truth. You know, you spent all your life telling lies. Because in the back of my head, I knew God's I'm going to be okay because God has told me. Mm. I had this sense of peace. Mm. I had a sense of direction. I had a sense of, even if I die, I'm going to be with God. Mm. And I knew he was real. So I wanted to do right by my... And, and I think it was a case of, I'd hurt her so much. And I left it up to her to make her decision and accepted that decision. Uh, as much as I tried to save the marriage, as I said before, there's consequences. And she says no, because communication, love, trust, confidence have gone out the window. And when she said she wanted a divorce, we went to the counselling and accepted it. And so I never hid nothing financially. And it took two years from uh, divorce nice side to absolute, lived in London, uh, seeing the kids every two weeks, still playing football, mentally, mentally draining mentally draining but all through that i'm grown as a christian mm. i'm going to church i'm reading my bible i'm praying I'm, I'm getting stronger and stronger and i'm my faith is increasing and i'm uh, and i'm where I, I where i was at top of my list very self-existent i soon became lower and lower and lower and lower so you know i wasn't number one in my life you know my relationship with god my kids and so I found myself at the bottom of my priorities. Mm. But what you realise, got to realise, is that God is a God of a second chance. Although uh, my marriage, uh, I got divorced and dissolved, uh, years later, uh, God's provided me for a wonderful lady, uh, Julia. Got married again, got a wonderful marriage. Uh, she's got a son, Marshall. Uh, she gets on great with uh, my children, my, my grandchildren. And God's brought me around and we've got a great marriage. Julie's wonderful. Um, she's a Christian girl, uh, lady. Uh, we go to the same church. We pray together. We're open together. And God has taught me what marriage is all about. And it's a selfless love. You know, I knew, I wish I knew this when I had my first marriage, but the marriage, the Bible says marriage is a, a reflection of God and of Christ in the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He, he, he died for the church. And I think in my marriage, uh, we put each other first, putting Julia before myself and Julia puts me before herself. We have ups and downs, but it works because we've got God's in the middle. A couple more questions before we finish, Cyril. How has the game changed for a professional footballer in the 20 years or so just about since you stopped playing unmanageable what total change total total, total. total. what what are the key changes professionalism totally changed i mean i told you about my lifestyle you couldn't do that now footballers are stars now we were working men so the tolerance that the media and the fans had of you was fine going out friday night going out on on a wednesday having a few beers girlfriend whatever it is Fine, you're a working man. Now, you're an average footballer in the Premier League. He's on 50 grand 
a week. A working man is 25 grand a year. So there's different demands. And so the working man wants you to be professional. But with that as well, you're a star because we're in this media kind of star culture. So even if you're playing at Northampton, you're a star. You, you do something wrong, you're in the papers. And so that's changed. You've got to be much more professional. Uh, you can't get away with the things we've got away with. You've got kiss and tell, you've got uh, Twitter, you've got cameras, you've got all sorts of things that, that can really trip you up. And when one something happens, the ripple effect being a public eye is horrendous. Young girl or drinking and driving, the ripple effect, not just with you, with your club, if your mum and dad, your kids going to school, it's, it's, it's horrendous. So a lot of pressure from that, that way. But back then, they accepted us as a working man, got away a lot more. Everything's measured in football. You know, we came in, we used to have steak, a pre-match meal, go and have pie and chips, a few pints after, after, um, after a game. In fact, the, 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 the bus away from home, we used to have a pint of lager, have some black pudding, have some, all, all stuff. Now, everything's measured. The training facilities, that's miles away from where we were. We played in mud, three inches of mud. We played, we trained on one pitch all year. We used to play five aside different corners. Now the, 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 the facilities are magnificent. The, the training grounds, uh, the, the, the medication, the physiotherapy, you know, one man, you know, just one man on a cold sponge. <laughs> now everything is measured. Your fat content, you've got GPS, your nutrition. There's so much knowledge out there. You can't get away with anything. And if you want to be a top player, a top club, you've got every resource. You've got Prozone, you've got feedback, you've got sports scientists, you've got everything. There's nothing you got, you know, there's nothing you can't have at a top club if you've got the right focus to be the best you can be. There's nothing. You, you've got DVDs, you can get the sports science guys to give you a DVD about you holding the ball up, you get feedback. In our days, a DVD, as soon as a DVD come out, nobody wanted to watch it because it was used as a whipping tool. Look, you didn't do that right, you can do it. Now it's a learning tool and the culture is learning. So culturally, you've got to be better behaved yep. because you're so exposed. Yeah. Uh, and almost the class thing, you're set apart as a huge earner, but two, the way you learn the game is transformed. Transformed. What? No, and, and the rewards are staggering. Staggering. M more money St than you can... Staggering yeah. rewards. And, and, and now it's become more about money. I mean, not f it happens that way because you have a television deal, pressures for points, pressures staying up. That, that integrity side, you see players faking injuries, you know... You don't see grace no more at a top level. You don't say, you know what, they were better than us, good times, so you can. It's, it's angst. You don't get that, 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 that no more at a top level because look at this year. If you go up from the, from the championship to the premiership, it's £170 million. Pounds. You know, if you come down this year from the premiership, you're losing £50, £60 million. Pounds. That causes pressure. That causes managers to make decisions. That causes players to make decisions. That causes fans to demand more expectation. That causes... Uh, directors and and television and radio and all that to have a different aspect of of, of football because of money. It's not as free. It's not as joyous. It's, it's not real characters no more. You can't get away with so much, and things have changed. And one aspect has been fantastic. The, the Premier League is a one. I mean, the professionalism, the marketing, the glamour is. is it's an unbelievable league. The different the different nationalities around the world is unbelievable. But there's, but there's 
there's a fallout. There's consequences. When I played football, there was, and I talk, and I say this to, to young players now, there was 85% English players playing in the, prim, in the old first division. Now you've got 32% and falling, which has knock-on effect. So the, the pool for England is shallower. And for an English player, how good you've got to be to get in a premiership. When I came in, it was 85%. The door was quite wide. Now it's 30%. So much more dedicated, focused, disciplined you've got to be because that door is only 30%. And so a young player looking at that whose dreams to want to be in the profession, to want to be in the premiership and stay there and get eight years in the premiership, you've got to be seriously professional. But all the tools are there for you to do it. But as a football agent, why time mentor is because they young players think that talent is, and I ask them this question all the time. What do you think your talent at 100% goes towards you being a professional footballer? A 15, 16-year-old will say talent is 50 to 90%. So what they tend to do, they tend to rely on talent. They don't build up these skills of character, mental strength, passion, drive, hunger. They don't build it up. I think when I was younger, you, you built it up organically on the streets with your mates, edge about you. You know, life was different then. You know, now football is more of a middle class sport. Mum brings you here, uh, you get yellow boots, pink boots, get things given to you. But back then you had to scrap for it. And so you got an edge about you. There's a character about Even on the building site, you learn lessons. 15, 16 on the building site, if the electrician said to me, go down and get a screwdriver, I had to go down 10 floors. Had to, had to uh, go, come in, do, you know, wash the toilets, make me a cup of tea, bring in conduit all day, you know, big conduit, big, big pipes for hours in the snow, in the, in, the, in the sun. Do you want to do it? But you did it. So he built character. So when I came to professional football, he had a bit, you know, I want to be better than him. I want, I want, his, I want his position. Football's about uh, competition for places. And so you've got to have this drive to go, I want to be better than him. And what I see with, with a lot of young players, and they get kind of institutionalised. Academy system, you're there from eight. You always get a game, don't you? Well done, little Johnny. You don't play in the streets and bigger boys and... You're having a scrap and in the edge. Academy system, here's a game. Next week, drop off, spin off, do it. get a game, get a game, get a game. You last an academy for 10 years and you get a game, institutionalised. To get to 80, 90, 20, it's a merit. If you don't play well, you don't play. If you don't play, you're out. So you, that, that mindset you have to get be better than who's in front of you and then look who's behind you who's better and use that as motivation to get better they don't quite grasp it they they, they expect oh, I'm being, oh. then they say manager doesn't like me or he prefers other players but you got you got to have all these 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 heart and mind strengths to last in this game surely you've uh, it's been great chatting to you because you think 1963 Portobello Road shoveling around London living in different houses mm. split from your family half the time uh, it's a few years beyond that now uh, here's the one thing that you've not said all the way through, you won't have noticed it because it's a behaviour, not a conscious attitude mm. you, you have. Cyril Regis still loves football. Oh. Yeah, but you, you, not once have you said it, but every tone of voice, every ounce of our conversation with you shouts out, and I just love it and being in it. I haven't worked for Neon since 1977. I haven't worked. It doesn't mean it's not frustrating. It doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean I haven't gone through a damn time. But that, that emotional connection with football is still there. Still keep going? There. Still there. And keep going. I love watching football, love watching plays. And the part of my job I love is the mentoring. Telling boys my anecdotal 
uh, stories of how I dealt with things you're going to deal with. How was my day? What is it really like to be a pro? Because they see it from a rose-tinted colour glasses point of view. When I tell them about the fights in dressing room, the arguments from the manager, the verbals from the manager, how you have to react to, to certain situations, and I can see them going, what, you went through that? I says, yeah, you're going to have to do that. I, t- I tell them this story all the time. I say, listen, you're 22, 23. You had an argument on Friday night with your missus over anything. You've gone to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. You can't sleep. You get up at 8. If I have any sleep, get up at 8. You go on a bus to Man United. You fall asleep on a bus because you're tired. You're thinking about stuff in your head. You've argument with your wife. That pre-match meal, you have, uh, you warm up. Go in the first half. You have a stinker. First half. Manager comes in, sits everybody down, hammers you for 10 minutes. Rages you Effing this, you effing that. You'll never play with this effing club again. You are rubbish. All in front of your teammates. Your teammates are doing up their laces. They're embarrassed and strips you bare, makes you feel this small. And then he says, get out there in the second half in front of 50,000 people. I don't care how much talent you got. If you haven't developed a mental strength and character to go out there and perform, you'll never last in this game. So Regis, been a joy chatting to you. Fantastic you're being in your company today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Get the book, Cyril Regis' story, My Story by Cyril Regis. Uh, you've got to read it. It's uh, oh, I've captured so many things that are in the book here. If you want to know more about Christians in Sport, go to uh, christiansinsport.org.uk and there's an absolute ton of stuff there that might help you think through the relationship between being an athlete, a sportswoman, a sportsman, and being a Christian. Hundreds and hundreds of people who follow Jesus Christ now are involved in the world of sport. Twitter is uh, CIS underscore UK. Uh, Just follow that and you'll capture lots of the stories that we come up with here at Christians in Sport. And there's a Facebook page of the same name. Great having your company. Look forward to chatting with my next guest, who's got quite a high bar to jump. (laughs) We'll be back with that next time. You can find new podcasts every month by searching for the Christians in Sport podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud and subscribing there or by keeping in touch via our social media.